titled this message, Believe and Go. It's very simple, and uh, I try and keep things very simple because this message has been preached in other places, to be honest. Go to the next slide, please, Hamish. Just imagine there's, uh, here in Hamilton, there's a two-story building. Uh, next slide, Hamilton. Uh, Hamish, not Hamilton. Two-story building, there's a lady up there with a baby. She's the only one home, and there's a fire that comes up the stairs, and she's trapped. She can't get to the fire exit. She rings 111. The fire service responds quickly. They get out there, and uh, the, the flames are licking, and the, the lady's holding a baby there, hoping they'll get there in time to get the baby out with a ladder. Fire service turns up outside, and just as they do, the... Uh, the chief there gets a text. He thinks, oh, I'd just better check that. So he checks his texts, and and then uh, while he's at it, he checks his email too, and didn't actually turn out to be too important. The other guys in the back think, oh, well, if that's what the chief's doing, we'll get our phones out. And so they start checking their texts and their Facebook and their email and Twitter and whatever else I've got on there. And after five or ten minutes, that's all clear, and there's nothing urgent there, and they think, well, we'll better leap out and um, put this fire out. So they jump out. By then, it's too late. The poor woman and her baby have expired from smoke inhalation, and by now they're just about charred. And uh, so they put the fire out, and that's that's their day. And that seems a bit extreme and pretty absurd story, doesn't it? Really. So I'll come back to that absurd story. And you might sort of see what I'm getting at. The main idea, Hamish, if you could pick another one, this morning is believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then go as his ambassadors. And it's been really interesting just this morning. I didn't know that the lesson was going to be on the resurrection earlier today and didn't know kind of what the theme was, uh, I might have been able to pick with running up to Easter, but I'm not actually all that clever. But God's kind of worked this message in, I think, beautifully with what we were learning about the resurrection and also, yeah, with your focus on Easter coming up too and the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So our passage is John twenty nineteen to 31, and we'll discover... Uh, well, we could ask some questions. Where do we get the faith to believe if we're saying we need to believe? Well, you know, we've, how, how does that happen? Where do we get the faith to do that? And where do we get the empowerment to go as ambassadors into the world? Maybe we're a bit timid and don't really know where to start. Well, we'll discover the answers to these questions in John twenty nineteen to 31 as we examine two responses that are required of believers. First one is to believe and the second to go. And I'm going to break that first response of believing down into three sections. Uh, believing from the point of view of the disciples, then from the point of view of Thomas, and then from our point of view here 2,000 years later. So the first response, believing. And next slide, Hamish believing from the point of view of the disciples. And let's get our Bibles open and into our text. John 20. 
verse 19 says. So the context here is Christ has been crucified, buried, and resurrected, and he's, he's evidencing that re resurrection at various times. He's already appeared to Mary Magdalene, according to John's account. And then verse 19, on the evening of that day, being the Resurrection Sunday, the first Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And that's a really good thing to say when you suddenly appear in a room that's totally locked. And some people, there's all sorts of postulations as to how he got in there, and I don't think that really matters, but he did have a resurrection body, so it may have been different to the way we would normally enter a room. Nevertheless, it was a bit scary, so part of, partly the Jewish um, greeting, shalom, peace be with you, but yeah, he greets them. And uh, he stood among them and said, peace be with them. So it talks there about the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And we need to just be very clear, because it's going to be important later, who these disciples were. And it's more than just the ten. So by now we're missing Judas, and we also know that later on Thomas isn't there either. So it's more than just the ten, because... Often in the Gospels it talks about the disciples and then, as we see a bit later on uh, in verse 24, it says Thomas, one of the twelve. So where it's one of the twelve, it often says the twelve and then disciples as a wider group. And then it gets even wider at times talking about the crowd uh, or the multitudes. So this is disciples, but it probably includes uh, the woman, those ones that were supporting Jesus, following him around, uh, and some other men beyond the ten men. So that'll be important later. Verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And I think the ESV underdoes it a little bit here when it says they were glad, and uh, even maybe the Greek even underdoes it a little bit because the parallel account in Luke 24 verse 41 says they disbelieve for joy. So it's kind of this concept, this is unbelievable. Jesus cried, we thought you were dead. You're here. So, yeah, glad for us is a bit, bit Kiwi. It's a bit sort of <laughs> played down. Uh, yeah, they, they were rejoicing. They disbelieved for joy. And that, yeah, the the Greek actually means they rejoiced. Um, so yeah, they're partying that this Jesus that they thought was dead, who Mary had said, hey, he's alive, but they're going, yeah, right. Now they see him in front of them. They rejoice. They obviously believe in the resurrected Christ. They wouldn't be rejoicing if they're thinking this is a ghost. And that's what, they, what the Luke account says. They thought they'd seen a ghost. Um, yeah, they'd believe that this, this Christ is resurrected. And Christ actually predicted this just back in John 16.22. He said, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Well, that was a sort of a short-term prophecy. Um, here it's fulfilled. Their hearts are rejoicing now. They have seen him. It's been fulfilled. And he says, No one 
will take your joy from you. And that's what we see in their lives as they all went. It's already been talked about this morning. They all went on, uh, all but one. John, the author of this one, went on to be martyred. No one took their joy from them. Now Christ here didn't tell them to believe. They were just all convinced beyond any doubt. They see Christ with uh, scars in his hands and a hole in his side and so on. They know who it is. They hear his voice. Uh, it's really bordering on they had no choice but to believe. He's right there in front of them. It's sort of like I didn't have to come in here and convince you, hey, it's me, John Redshaw. I'm really here, okay? I'm really here. I just walked in and said, oh, here's John. Okay, no problem. So they believed. What about Thomas? He, he missed the grand entrance uh, here with the rest of the disciples. And so we'll just skip a few verses because we'll come back to them. But go to verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And we don't know a lot about Thomas. There's only two verses speak about him. One where Jesus wants to go back uh, to, to minister to Lazarus. And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. So we might be able to infer from that Thomas isn't lacking a bit of courage and a bit of zeal. Um, and also John 14 verse 5, Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So yeah, he's at least got a questioning mind and he's not afraid to, uh, to, uh, to ask Christ if he doesn't know something. Other than that, we don't know too much about him. So Jesus wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, and the, the Greek there where it says told him, that's an action and process. In other words, they continually told him. And they've got eight days here to continually tell Thomas, Thomas, we've seen Christ. We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and the place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Again, in the Greek there, that's a double negative. It's kind of like, I will by no means, certainly not, ever believe. Unless I could see that. He's being really strong on it. So, yeah, he's not going to take the, the disciples' account. You know, maybe they were, as we discussed earlier today, maybe they were a bit deluded or disillusioned, maybe they've um, yeah, you know, eaten too much pizza or something, who knows and they, they weren't thinking straight and Thomas is saying, no, I want some really solid evidence, I want to actually feel him, I want to use one of my five senses or two of them, I want to see him and I want to actually touch him put it into those, those scars and that side and that scepticism serves a real purpose for us um Carrying on, verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, again, peace be with you, or shalom. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So Thomas is a real good sceptic here. He wants some empirical evidence. And it's, it's helpful for us today because it shows that he was not predisposed to believing the resurrection. Um, 
Maybe the others did get a bit carried away and emotional. Well, Thomas isn't one of those people. He's kind of the scientific one that says, well, you know, have, we, have we got rational empirical evidence here? He may have thought the other disciples had seen a ghost, which is what the disciples initially thought according to Luke 24, 37. And there's a group of people that would soon come along in the next decade or two called the Gnostics, and they would soon deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. They would say, no, he, he rose as a spirit, yeah, because they'd say that the, the, the physical is evil and corrupted, so how could he have come with a physical body? But all of those ideas are impossible to reconcile with Thomas's unbelief, then his belief when he saw the Lord Jesus himself. And then again, remember that church history records Thomas as dying for his Lord and his God in southern India. So that's how far he got uh, with the gospel. There's churches there today that trace their roots back to this very man who was a skeptic and said, I will never believe unless I can do these things. And Thomas here wasn't rebuked for his skepticism. Christ didn't tell him off for going through those eight da days of being a skeptic. But he did tell him not to disbelieve, but to believe. Now, if we can sort of define things, doubt is sort of a case where we cannot believe. Doubt would be, be where we haven't got enough evidence. And you could say that Thomas was doubting. He's been labelled as that. And I would defend Thomas and say, for him, he didn't have enough evidence to believe. He was saying, I want more evidence. But unbelief is when we will not believe. It's an act of our will. Unbelief is when the intellectual problem of doubt has been dealt with, but the response required of believing or the act of the will is resisted. So we've got to be careful that once we've got enough evidence, and we talked about evidence of the resurrection this morning, once we've got enough evidence beyond any reasonable doubt, would stand up in any court of law, uh, to still then say, no, uh, I can't believe it. And Hebrews 3.12, talking to Christians, says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, I don't believe that's talking about losing our salvation, but it's falling away in terms of not believing what we should. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, Examine yourselves, again to Christians, to see whether you are in the faith. Today, even as Christians, are we walking in belief or are we walking in unbelief? Are we saying, no, I can't really trust what you've said here. I can't really trust you, God. Uh, even though I'm saved, I'm going to live in this sort of life of, the, this life of unbelief where I don't fully put my trust in what God said. Warren Wesby says it may sound sophisticated and intellectual to question what Jesus did, but such questions are usually evidence of hard hearts, not of searching minds. Thomas represents the scientific approach to life, but it did not work. After all, when a skeptic says, I will not believe unless, then he is already admitting that he does not believe. He believes in the validity of the test or experiment that he has devised. If he can have faith in his own scientific approach, why can he not have faith in what God has revealed? We need to remind ourselves that everybody lives by faith. 
The difference is in the object of that faith. Christians put their faith in God and his word, while unsaved people put their faith in themselves. End of fairly long quote. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And this is the highest level of faith recorded in the gospel, really. And when he says answered him, the those that deny the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is God, would say, oh, that's just a, a general reference. He's, it's kind of like our the common saying today with every teenage girl, the, the oh my God. Uh, it's not an oh my God, it's my Lord and my God. It's, it's, a, it's a reference to a definite person, to Jesus Christ here. There's no way around that, that Thomas is addressing Jesus Christ as his Lord and his God. Again, if he wasn't God, the best thing to do, or if you did that to me today, the best thing I would do for fear of lightning bolts and other things would be to say, stop, I am not God. Uh, all, I'm, all I am is a, is a mouthpiece for him. But um, Jesus never says that. He accepts that worship. He accepts that acknowledgement that he is both Lord, or he's king, sovereign, ruler over everything, and he is, in fact, fully God. And the two go together, my Lord and my God. False converts will say, yes, I believe that Jesus is God. And they might go through a process of um, some sort of accepting salvation or a, a mental assent. But true conversion or true belief actually acknowledges that he is Lord. And I'm not talking about lordship salvation here. I'm not saying that the day that I was saved, that every area of my life was submitted to, to, to my Lord. But the day I was saved, I acknowledged him as God and as Lord. From that point on, I said, you, uh, I'm going to do things your way. And we all continue to struggle in certain areas of submitting that, and that doesn't affect our salvation. But it's acknowledging he has a right, he is king, he is sovereign, he he owns us, he's bought us with a price. We are his and he is our Lord. We are his servants. So a very high confession of faith there. And Romans 1 verses 4 to 6 says that Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So again, that resurrection is crucial uh, that's what declares him in power according to the spirit of the holiness to be the son of God. And no one else has been resurrected from the dead. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, that reference to lordship, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about, listen to this, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So this faith that Thomas exercised, it was an act of obedience. His, his questions, his scientific approach had been answered and he had enough evidence and then he responded by obeying in faith. And we see that in other parts in the book of John. So we've seen here the belief of the, the disciples, this wider group, 
the ten plus woman and other disciples. We've seen the response of Thomas. Uh, They're all convinced. What about us today, 2,000 years later? Well, we are mentioned in Scripture. Here we are. Talks about you and me, verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. So, 1 Peter 1, 8 to 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And I pray you do love him this morning. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, yeah, we are those people who Jesus spoke about and who Peter talked about too. We identify with these other people uh, by Peter's time who had not seen Christ himself themselves, but uh, they too believed. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 it says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And ultimately true faith must transcend sight. Otherwise our faith is actually in the empirical evidence. In other words, that which we can observe with our five senses. And our ability to correctly uh, analyse that evidence. Now, I, with a number of other people here, have been trained in the philosophy of science. And I trust, I, I expect that we would know the limitations of that philosophy. Unfortunately, some proponents of that philosophy sort of push it as going further than what it can. But the philosophy of science has very real limits. Uh, yeah, it can't do things like tell us where the origins of the universe are. And so we need to use the right measure, and science falls short. Uh, in other words, to give another example, um, there's some a yellow lid down there. I can't smell that yellow lid. I can see it's yellow, but my, my nose is of no use in determining what colour that lid is. So it's the same way we try and say, well, let's try and determine these, uh, these things by scientific fact. Well, that we can't run an experiment. We can't repeat that experiment over and over again to see if Christ actually was resurrected. We've got to go back to historical or forensic evidence to determine whether that's true or not. In verses 30 to 31, Jesus, uh, the Apostle John, who wrote the, this book, gives his, his purpose statement. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have, may have life in his name. So he wants us to respond with belief. This is why John wrote this book. This is why... I've preached right through it because it's such a good book for convincing, giving all the evidence so that we've got enough to respond in obedience by believing. In John 5 verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In John 3 verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son 
has eternal life, whoever does not obey. Notice that switch. He doesn't say whoever does not believe, but he says whoever does not obey. In other words, once we've got enough evidence, if we don't obey in belief, the son, of, the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So a, a theme through John and actually Romans is that responding uh, to the evidence in faith by obeying and uh, making that act of the will. So hopefully we've explained a little bit the, the belief of the disciples, the belief of Thomas, and how today we work on the historical evidence of Scripture, uh, and we were talking earlier of the church and so on, and we, by an act of our own volition, we believe as well. So having got there, what's our second response required of us? It's to go. And I've kind of borrowed that from another place in Scripture. But verse 21, we see Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. If you want a passage to meditate on this week, that's a good one. Just think about all the ways that the Father sent Christ and that we are sent in the same way. It builds on John 17 verse 18 where it says, Jesus says as, he's praying I think, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. It's given at a different time to Matthew 18, 19 to 20. But note here, you know, who's he talking to? Who's this? Who are these disciples? Is this just the ten? No, it's a wider group, so important now. This is where it comes to land. With that wider group, he didn't take a survey or ask who would like to be sent. He said to all of them, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So all believers are sent. And I was just talking to someone this week who's, who had been under some preaching where they were told that no, only the, the clergy, only the professionals, uh, you know, only the Scots and, and I's and the Rosemary's are sent. And very quickly, I actually went to this scripture and I went to a few others to refute that very idea. All of us are sent. John 3.16 tells us what the motivation for uh, God sending his son was. For God so loved the world. So our motivation, we don't go out of, out of fear or out of shame uh, of not going. That can be a, used as a way to manipulate us to, to be ambassadors, but we go out of the motivation of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And John fifteen twelve to 17 talks a little bit more about that motivation as to why we would go. John 15, verses 12 says, This is my commandment, again Jesus speaking to his disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, that he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So this commanding, this going, this bearing fruit, it's not an option for believers. Uh, it's imperative that we go and our motivation for going is love for God and it's love for people. How else did the Father send the Son? And I could uh, spend hours on that whole topic, but just get a couple more in. Philippians 2, 5-8 It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count an equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we're going to be sent as Christ was sent, we're going to have to empty ourselves. We're going to have to take the form of a servant. We're going to have to be obedient, possibly literally to the point of death, but certainly death to self every day. Uh, and some of these ones um, in Philippians that would be hearing it would have even been subject to death on a cross. So that's our attitude. It's, it's humbling ourselves as servants in obedience. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And for me, there's nothing greater than to live for him who died for me and uh, gave his life for me. So back to verse 22. Uh, in John 20. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So, beautiful, these passages, verse 21 and 22, As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, so we've got the Father there, the Son, and now the Holy Spirit. The whole Trinity is involved in sending us or sending these disciples and us as disciples 2,000 years later, Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all involved in sending us out to be as ambassadors. John 7 verse 39 says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So back in John 7, he couldn't give them his spirit. He couldn't empower them to go because he first needed to be resurrected and glorified. Today, because we've believed, if you've believed in him, according to that passage, you've received the Holy Spirit. It's no second blessing, no later filling of the spirit. The minute we're born again, we receive the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, and... and and he's the one that empowers us to then go and do what he's called us to do. John 14, verse 15 to 17, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So we've been told to go. We've been given the commission, if you like. As the Father has sent Christ, even so he's sending us. And then he's also given us the empowerment. He's given us his Holy Spirit, who's the one who who empowers us to do the work he's called us to do. And that's a tremendously high commission. Verse 31 talks about uh, so that believing you might have life in his name. To me, that's abundant life. Uh, I'm often a little bit uh, timid myself before sharing the gospel with someone or sharing the gospel with a group or speaking up for Christ. But when I do... uh, I feel that that abundant, that Zoe life in me. It's, uh, that's that, that overflowing life. It's not the staying behind locked doors in the fear of man like the disciples were. But it's an obeying and going at times whether we feel like it or not. And the Holy Spirit is in us and he provides the power to accomplish that work. So there's a bit of a challenge there. It's good to see you're studying Christianity Explored and um, hopefully that's equipping you to make you more effective to be an ambassador to go as, as Christ is sending us and to share the gospel, to be reconciling people back to the Father. But uh, maybe you're, you're not one that's, that uh, is very comfortable with with sharing spiritual things or Christian things, we'll just encourage you to start this week by just being friendly with people, get conversations going. It's, in some ways, it's getting harder in this world to get conversations going. I used to be able to sit on the plane every time and say, hi, how are you? Where, what's, you know, where are you off to today? Are you going home or are you going out? These days, as soon as everyone gets on the phone, it's straight on the, on the device. And we look at the trains and everyone is on the device and it's kind of like hard to get a conversation going. But I encourage you just, yeah, just uh, work on trying to get some conversations going. And beyond that, um, if you're not sure what to do, how to go about it, um, get some training, ask for it. Um, that's one of Pastor Scott's roles and maybe there's an evangelist in this church whose job is to train and equip others to to share their faith. And failing that, then we use gifted people like the people that put Christianity Explored together or, or to be honest, my opening illustration comes from Ray Comfort, the gifted evangelist. So, um, yeah, take those first steps. Obey, follow Christ's commands and, and, and take that first step. Start moving. Verse 23. So they've been commissioned, they've been empowered, have they got any authority to do this? He says, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And that could be seen as a difficult passage. You're already asking, well, is that just the apostles? Um, What does he mean they've got power to forgive sins? Um, Did this pass down through the popes? What's the story here? Um, well, let's deal with that. There is no instance in the New Testament where any apostle 
uh, is recorded as forgiving sins. Peter in Acts 10 verse 43 and Paul in Acts 13 38 both spoke on the authority of Christ. So to paraphrase the ESV Study Bible, to explain this, the expressions they are forgiven and it is withheld are both in the perfect tense verbs in Greek, which gives the sense of completed past action with continuing results in the present. The idea is not that individual Christians or churches have authority on their own to forgive or not to forgive sin or forgive people, but rather that as the church proclaims the gospel message of forgiveness of sins in the power of the Holy Spirit, saw that in verse 22, it proclaims that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven and that those who do not believe in him do not have their sins forgiven. So, end of quote from the ESV Study Bible. So it is not in the power of man to forgive sins against God. We can't do that. But as an ambassador for Christ, through the Holy Spirit in us, man can only pronounce forgiveness on the basis of what God has done in Christ. So we have the authority to proclaim Christ died, he was buried, he's resurrected, and if you believe that he is God and he is your Lord, then we can proclaim if all those things are true, then you too are forgiven. And because it follows verse 22, verse 22, this authority to pronounce forgiveness is not confined to the apostles, but it applies to those who have received the Holy Spirit and are his disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. So there's a real good tie up there. And if you want to check that again from a different perspective, Luke 24, 36 to 49 speaks of the same incident and again talks about the, uh, um, makes it clear who he's talking to. So hopefully that deals with that tricky scripture that um, some have taken out of context or uh, against other scripture. So in conclusion, are we doing what we're commissioned, what we're empowered, and what we're authorised to do? Are we actually doing it? Or are we like those firemen? You know, they had the... They had, uh, the commissioning, they were given a job as a fireman, maybe even as a volunteer, but they were given a uniform and some authority. They were given an axe where they can smash down windows and doors. Um, they were empowered to do it through their training and the knowledge of other firefighters. And um, so, yeah, commissioned and they were empowered and they were given authority to do things. In their case, in that ludicrous story, having had all of that, they got distracted by trivial, small stuff, checking texts, you know, busy, busy work in life. Are we like them? Or are we just, we've got all the gear, all the equipment, all the authority, we know what to do, but we're just sitting in the fire station doing trivial stuff together. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Are you trusting in his redeeming work on the cross to pay the debt of your sins 
that you cannot pay. If that's the case, then you too have been sent as Christ was sent. You have the helper abiding in you, and you have been given the authority to act as Christ's ambassador. And uh, read Matthew 28, 18 to 20 again, just in case you're not sure. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So all that remains is for you here to determine in your heart to obey the command, go and make disciples. Let's pray. Coming to this earth to die on that cross, to be buried and uh, then to rise again three days later. We thank you for taking the punishment of our sins on the cross and we thank you that we know by your resurrection that your sacrifice was accepted by the Father and uh, has fully paid for our sin. We thank you for your word recording the eyewitness accounts of your physical bodily resurrection from the dead. And thank you for sending your apostles who obeyed your command to go and that we are the beneficiaries of their obedience. Thank you that you've also commissioned us, that you've empowered us, and you've authorised us to go in your name. We ask now that you would work in us by your Holy Spirit to love you enough and to love other people enough to actually obey you and to go. Pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory alone. Amen.